Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I am your host, Christina McAteer, and have the pleasure of welcoming Catherine Vesnes, our financial expert, to help guide us through our financial education. How are you today, Catherine? Well, another great day, because Christy, you know how much I love this. I not only get to be with you, but we get to help bring more peace of mind to all of the doctors who are tuning in. So once again, great day. Excellent. Well, we're thankful for your insights. And as I look to today's topic, it is catastrophic planning for doctors. Sounds nerve wracking, but I suppose it's something we should all be thinking about. What have you got for us, Catherine? Well, absolutely. Because really what we're going to be talking about is what to do in an emergency. And one of the things I've noticed is some of our younger doctors are very fortunate because they've never had any catastrophes in their life. And uh, something the older doctors know that the younger ones don't is things happen, right? Things just go wrong. And unfortunately, working in the emergency room, I know that there's often no advance notice. It happens and you just have to react to it. Exactly. And probably in the emergency room, you see it all different ages, right? From the very young to the very old. And it's one of the things that actually makes me really thankful for my job because it helps you realize that things can change in a moment and therefore you can take nothing for granted. Oh, so true. So you know me, I'm all about worst case scenario planning. And I think about when it comes to a crisis, there are really three major problems that doctors could face. And here's what I'm thinking about them. Um, Number one is disability. You're too sick or injured to work, you have no income, and yet you still have bills to pay. So when it comes to catastrophes or major problems, I really think there are three major things that can affect our doctors during their career. Uh, The first is disability. They're too sick or injured to work. Uh, They have a premature death of a breadwinner. That would be number two. And the final one is job loss. None of those sound desirable, but I'm hoping that you have a plan for us and some stories to help us understand it. I do have a plan. Now, I'm going to start with disability because, as I've mentioned before, I can only think of a couple of our clients that come from very wealthy families. And at your age, statistically, you're far more likely to be disabled than you are to die. It's almost like four or five times, depending upon the study that you see. So when you're too sick or injured to work, unfortunately, your entire house of financial cards can come down uh, because you have no income and you still have bills to pay. And um, this can be absolutely dreadful. And, And a lot of times when people are too sick or injured to work, they actually have additional bills. They need additional medical care that's not covered by insurance or they need help at home. Yes, those bill collectors, they are not known to be empathetic, are they? Exactly. So it's true that some disability insurance, uh, some student loans, you may not have to pay if you're if you're disabled. Uh, but by and large, I don't like to plan for that. I think, okay, how can we cover this? So the best way, obviously, to cover disability is what we call income protection insurance or disability insurance. Can you define that for us, Catherine? Absolutely. So with disability insurance, uh, you're too sick or injured. Uh, to work. And typically what happens is the insurance benefits will kick in after 90 days. Sometimes it could be longer and it helps replace your income during that, during that time. Now I've had very few doctors decline disability insurance. And interestingly enough, every one of them that declined it, something happened to them within the following two or three months. It was horrible. 
One of them slipped on the ice out in front of Rhode Island Hospital. She hit her head. She's in the intensive care unit. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we're not going to be able to get her covered. Uh, I had another doctor who had a grand mal seizure. It took me three years afterwards uh, to be able to get him covered. Um, I've had doctors that were in car accidents. So it can be a very difficult thing. Advice that you generally get is that you should apply for disability assurance very young in your career and maybe even as a resident. Is that generally true? I absolutely agree with that because the younger and healthier you are, the cheaper the coverage. We get policies that the premium stays the same for a doctor's entire career. It's very important, obviously. And I've had clients that honestly were so sick or injured, I literally could not get them covered. The insurance companies declined to cover them. So once again, the sooner you can get the coverage, the better. You know, some of these I mentioned to you, they declined the coverage and then they were in the car accident. Well, depending upon how, how much they were injured in that car accident, they may actually be uninsurable after that time period. That's a very scary prospect. Well, yes, particularly when you don't have a wealthy family. You know, and if something happened to you, you've got mortgages to pay, kids to put through school, other things. So we want to make sure that we've got a way of replacing this income. Interestingly enough, I currently now have four clients who are either out on disability benefits now or they have been recently. And fortunately, each one of these was insured I just have a story to tell you about one of them. At one time, he had been an emergency med doc. And when I first started working with him, and I may have mentioned this to you before, I'm looking at the the intake form and I'm going, 13,000 a month in income that's not taxed. And he, I thought he was going to come up out of his chair and choke me. He goes, don't tell my accountant. Don't tell my accountant. I go, okay, okay. I'm not telling your accountant. And it turned out that he had been an emergency med doc at one time. I have no idea what happened to him. He's never disclosed that to me. Just quit emergency med. And by the time I was working with him five or eight years later, he was actually doing urgent care. And he had really, really good disability insurance. So he not only was able to keep the uh, benefit or the that he was making under the disability insurance policy that he couldn't do emergency med, but he was also able to keep the income he was making in urgent care. And those are rare policies, but they're really the kind that doctors want. Excellent. So it sounds like there's a lot of nuances to determining the type of policy and how to figure out how much benefit you need. But the bottom line is disability insurance is a must. Absolutely. Absolutely. It must. Now, so that's uh, problem number one. So problem number two, I would say, is premature death of the breadwinner. Now, interestingly enough, term life insurance, which just means life insurance that's payable during a certain period of time, actually has a very low statistical payout. It's something less than 5% of all term insurance policies actually pay out a benefit. And a lot of people are like, well, this is a good deal for the insurance companies. Yes, it is a good deal for the insurance companies. reason is, Most people have their only life insurance through work. So very typically a client, a doctor might have one or two times their annual income um, as a death benefit through the life insurance at work. And that only means their family is going to, if something happened to them, they'd only have a year or two worth of income. And then they're going to be completely broke. So it makes me think that that's not enough coverage. Is that what you're trying to tell us? Exactly. And once again, this is dependent from client to client. How much wealth do they have and other resources? You know, how old are their kids? There's a lot of different factors that go into this. Um, 
But even though statistically it's rare, like I would say less than a 5% chance that our clients would be dying at a young age, I actually had two close friends whose husbands died and left them with toddlers. Now, statistically, you'd think, what are the chances of that happening? Pretty, It'd be pretty rare, but it happened to me. So the good news is you can insure this risk with very inexpensive term life insurance. Once again, this is a risk that I think it's, although statistically it's less likely to happen, I think it's a very important one to make sure clients are properly insured. So it almost sounds like you suggest having multiple life insurance policies. Is that even possible? It is possible. And sometimes that makes a lot of sense. So when it comes to life insurance policies at work, I frankly, I don't even include those when we're doing our statistical analysis on how much insurance doctors need. And the reason is you have to be employed at the time of death for your heirs to get a benefit. Now, I don't mean you have to die on the job, but what I mean is you have to be employed. Most people, though, get so sick that they go home because they can't work anymore. So they leave work and they go home. So they're not actually insured at the time of death. And so an alternate policy would be a little bit more flexible and not have that active employment nuance to the contract? Well, exactly, because those employment policies paid for by your employer. So I always think clients need their own policies. So they're portable, they're yours, you have them whether you're employed or not. If you change employers, you still have it. So a very rough, rough rule, and this is where I do need clients to take a deep breath, is how much life insurance do you need? Well, depends. If you don't have anyone who's dependent upon your income, you don't have a spouse, you don't have kids, parents, whatever, that need your money, you may not need any life insurance at all. The other hand, a very rough rule that we use is 20 times annual income, which take a deep breath, you can see that if you're uh, making 200000 a year, that would be a death benefit of $4 million. The good news is for most of our young, healthy clients, that is actually very inexpensive uh, to be able to get a policy in that range. And so I guess referencing our last podcast, this is a question that a trusted, qualified financial advisor could help you with and one that really should be uniquely curtailed to you and your individual situation. Exactly. We use a kind of a software that runs through various parameters. How much money uh, do you need for your spouse to live on after death? How much do you need to put your kids through school? Yeah, how much available resources do you have? And so very frequently, we're able to get that total death benefit down way below 20 times annual income. But once again, I always feel better if we run the numbers for a client first. That's kind of the first step there. The second step is, you know how strongly I believe it is to work with an independent financial advisor. We're not obligated with any particular insurance company. So we just run it through our database and try to find the best, most inexpensive coverage we can get for clients. Excellent. Well, I would say that having it be inexpensive is probably a great fit because we talked about how expensive the modern lifestyle is. And if there is such a low chance of payout, around 5%, as you say, it seems a little bit crazy to allocate a lot of your monthly budget to this benefit. The risk, unfortunately, although it's small, it'd be, it would be catastrophic. Absolutely. Once again, another example, sick surgeon making about 650000 a year. He was 60 when I met him. He had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he, for some reason uh, that I didn't quite understand, he was declining any treatment for this. Now, what's interesting about prostate cancer, as you know, is it's not a quick death. And as I'm analyzing his case, he did have four $1 million 
life insurance policies, four different ones. To your point, yes, you can have more than one policy, and he did. And I looked at them, and I realized policy number one was about to expire. Policy number two was going to expire shortly thereafter, three thereafter, four thereafter. This was all within a very short period of time. And then he was likely to expire. So it was a very shocking situation because even though he's 60 and he's working as a plastic surgeon, he literally had zero in emergency funds and savings. He had zero in the tax-free bucket, and he was very proud of himself. He had $750,000 in his 401k at work. And I'm looking at him because he's thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got all this money. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You're in California. It's not really worth $750,000 because it's never been taxed. Your family only has $350,000. Or in his case, his family, his two daughters who, were, who weren't even in college yet, would only have enough money for six months. It was really tragic. That sounds terrible. And I assume that he probably couldn't requalify for the life insurance now that he has the diagnosis of active cancer. Exactly. He's uninsurable. And it was really such a sad case. And I don't think he had quite connected the dots. But when you've been in the business as long as I have, I knew what would happen. All those policies were going to expire. He was going to expire. His wife was going to get um, a little bit of uh, money from work, and she was going to be bankrupt in six months. Oh, my gosh, that sounds tragic. Oh, it was horrible. So I'm saying, okay, what do we do in this situation? Which, by the way, we may have people listening to this podcast who are uninsurable. Well, the number one thing you can do is start socking away more money than you normally would if you were a healthy person that could mitigate this risk through insurance. So I said to him, you know, I think it's a good time for us to kind of tighten the belt and see if we can't get some money set aside for emergencies, you know, for savings for your family. He goes, oh, no, that's not possible. Why not? Well, I've got this lovely house and I'm, it needs $50,000 worth of new windows this year. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I think he just couldn't connect the dots. He couldn't see what was going to be happening to his family in this situation. You know, if I had been in his situation... I would have think, thought, good time to sell this house, downsize. Let's start socking some money away so that family's got some income if something happens to him in the short run. When your situation changes, it's a good time to stop and reflect because your financial goals and actions may need to change as well. So nothing's a given, but insurance does offer some security. And let's make sure that we have at least disability and some element of life insurance. I think that's true. Like I said, life insurance for people where they're dependent upon you to be the breadwinner. And if you don't have anybody like that, you may not need life insurance. Now, the third category that we can uh, protect against or as we come to uh, problems is job loss. Now, I'll be frank. In all the years I've been doing this, I've only had one doctor who didn't have a job. To be frank, she really didn't want to work. She preferred the life of a princess where she could go out and buy whatever she wanted. Now, what was unfortunate about this couple out of Houston, Texas, is there was a doctor couple. And between the two of them, Christy, take a deep breath. One million dollars in student debt. Oh, my goodness. It's the highest I have ever, ever seen. And she was a bit of a compulsive spender on top of it. Oh, no. Not a good combination. No. And the husband was working two or three jobs. I mean, it was really ugly all the way around. And she just couldn't, once again, couldn't quite connect the dots to see how serious the situation is. The stress he was under trying to support her while she's out buying things. 
so in her situation, I had the come to Jesus meeting and she did uh, send back a lot of the stuff that she'd been buying online. And sure enough, she got a job within six weeks. Excellent. Yes. And it was better than what she'd been doing before. She had better pay. She had better conditions. And I think this is a great thing about, you know, the risks that doctors face. We're at a time period where physicians are in such high demand that even losing a job is not a disaster uh, like it would be for other professionals. So I just want to make sure that our doctor clients or dentist clients have enough money to last them through a transition if they do lose a job. Again, wonderful advice. And I will say knowing that doctors are in demand has brought me much peace over the years because there is a lot of instability in the job market and it's medicine changes. But then I think, goodness, society is always going to need doctors. So there will be a job for me somewhere. Exactly. I think it was a great, great career choice, actually. So here's what we do to have these three risks. We can insure against disability, uh, as I said, with disability insurance. We can insure against premature death with life insurance. When it comes to losing your job, we really recommend that every doctor have easy access to funds that are about three to five months fixed living expenses. I'm going to call this an emergency fund or a rainy day fund. And I know we briefly touched on that in our last podcast of learning to save and having a sense of how much to save. I think in residency, the budget is so tight that oftentimes savings is not realistic. However, once you reach the attending level, it is something that you have to bring to monthly budget. So I'm glad that you're giving us that advice. Well, and I hope that even the people listening who are residents or fellows could realize, yes, even as a resident or fellow, your income is probably in the top 10% of the country. So there are probably some ways that you could be cutting back and setting some aside. And I'd like you to be thinking about that because, yes, I think it can be done. But when it comes to emergency funds in that three to five months fixed expenses, let me tell you what I'm talking about. You need enough to pay bills, mortgages, probably student loans, unless you have the kind of loan that would give you a, a forgiveness if you're a, um, unemployed food, transportation, daycare for the kids. Um, but this is not money for new clothes. It's not money for a big trip. It's not money for a fancy car. You know, it's like if we had to get to a bare bone budget, what would it be? Now, I've had some doctors think, oh, I need fifteen dollars to $20,000. And I've had other doctors tell me that they need $100,000. So it sounds like there's some personal variability there depending on what your lifestyle is, what you think your expenses are, and how much security you need to live with. Exactly. And I don't actually push back with clients on this because they know how much they need in order to feel comfortable. I want them to be at peace and whatever a number they come up with is great. Now, I will be frank, some of them have got, I need $100,000 in the bank just because, and I'm thinking, you know, it's making zero percent. It's not keeping up with inflation. So in that situation, I say, well, what amount could we, would you be comfortable there? How about 25,000 or 30, whatever, and let's invest the rest. We can invest it in an account that might do better than the bank. In fact, it might've done three to 5% over the last 20 years, um, but it's still very liquid. How would you feel about that? And so I think of that as a backup emergency fund. And most of our clients like to do that. 
as I listen to you, I think that would be the perfect option because you would still have it readily available to you, but at the same time, you're not losing anything by having that pot of money just sitting there. Right. So we do want some money in the bank, which we'll talk about in a minute and just my steps. Um, but this backup emergency fund we typically do is 25% stock, 75% bonds. It does fluctuate in value. And I always tell clients in 08, yes, it lost some money, but it recovered within six months. So I always, you know me, I always tell clients the pros and the cons. Most of our clients think that that's a fair trade and they're very happy to do that because our whole goal with that account is just to do better than the bank. Absolutely. You have to be doing your best to keep pace with inflation. Otherwise, you're just losing. You're losing your purchasing power, which is very devastating. So I have a step-by-step process. If it's okay with you, Christy, I'd like to run through so you can be thinking about what to do first, what to do next, et cetera. Yes, let's do that. Okay. Step one, emergency fund. So this is definitely at a bank. It's easy, And it could be an online bank. It could be a brick and mortar. It's easily accessed. The money's going to be there when you need it. Now, as I mentioned before, the returns on these accounts currently are absolutely abysmal. You'll be very lucky if you can get a half uh, to 1% on these. And as I mentioned, does not keep up with inflation. But the good news is the money is going to be there when you need it. It's very safe. It's very secure. So this is my, my step one. Emergency fund, think at least uh, for most of our clients, it'd be three to five months fixed living expenses. Okay, got it. Step two, uh, the intermediate account. Uh, I sometimes call this the put and take account. This could be the backup emergency fund. So these would also go into a taxable, what we call a non-qualified brokerage account. They could be earmarked for a big purchase in the next few years. They could be earmarked for a down payment for the house, a new car, wedding, big trip. But they're also there in case we've gone through our bank emergency fund. Then we can start getting into my cascade plan. We can go to the second bucket, this put and take account. And so again, this is an account that's actually accumulating value, keeping up with the pace of inflation, but also readily available to you. Is that correct? Exactly. So there's no surrender charges. There's no penalties to pull it out. Um, You know, there will be some tax consequences on the gains if there's gains. Um, And I typically don't uh, put these funds in doing calculations for retirement. And the reason is our clients are going to spend this money. They may not spend it this year or next, but they're going to be spending it sometime before retirement. The idea is to keep it as a rainy day fund, maybe used for a big purchase. But in the case of an emergency, it's readily available to you. Exactly. So that would be step two. So let's say your catastrophe is so horrible. You've been through all the money in the bank. You've been through this intermediate put and take account. Now we have to go to step three. Step three would be also another brokerage account. When we do this for clients, we have like wealth accumulation accounts or put and keep accounts. You want to put the money in and keep it there. This is usually money that's earmarked for retirement or financial independence. Now, with this account, we take more risk. It's got more stocks. It's going to have more ups and downs. And uh, it's not the first place that I would be going for money because of the risk, because you don't want this your catastrophe to happen like in 08, when some people had actually lost 20, 30, or 40% or more in these accounts. That is a huge shocker. And I remember 2008 and how much our 
relatives and parents were really hurting with that stock market crash. It was horrible for the people who had to take money out. So you can see my, but why I've got my cascade catastrophe plan is if this is 08 and you do have that catastrophe, whatever it is, then we want to go to the bank first and we want to go to that put and take account second. So hopefully most times we don't even have to get to step three, but it's there if we need it. Excellent. One more thing I should say about this account is in general, we believe that stocks and bonds move inverse to each other. So if the stock market's down, the bonds are up. So a lot of times what we do, if we have to hit up this account for a client, is we take the money out of the bonds, not out of the stocks, and we let the stocks recover. Oh, I like that flexibility. That way you minimize the amount of loss that you have to accept. Exactly. So step four would be looking at your 401ks or 403b retirement accounts at work. So most of our clients can borrow up to 50% of a 401k or 403b, um, assuming that they that's a provision that their current employer allows. It's very rare uh, an employer does not allow this. Now, what's great about borrowing money from the retirement accounts is you're actually borrowing it from yourself. So yes, you will owe interest, but you're owing interest to yourself. So this would be another place that you could get funds if you are really hard up and absolutely had to. And I assume that most of us as employed physicians have these type of retirement accounts. So nice to know that that little bit of benefit or security is there. Exactly. Once again, I don't go to my first step. It's step number four in this process. And interestingly enough, you, you're not allowed to borrow from IRAs or Roth IRAs, but you can borrow from 401ks and 403bs. Right. Now, the fifth step is Roth accounts and regular pre-tax IRAs. Now, this is my, I only use this if it's absolutely necessary uh, because there's a 10% penalty and ordinary income tax on the gain if you have to withdraw funds before age 59 and a half. So remember, I said you can't borrow uh, from these. You'd have to withdraw the funds and it can be incredibly painful. So if you're a doctor today who's in a state like Minnesota or New Jersey, New York or California, we've got very high taxes anyway. You'd have state taxes, federal taxes, and this 10% penalty. It's very easy to lose 50%. The mental image I have is you're looking at dollars in the account and then you actually look what's in your hand and it's just a few pennies. Exactly. That's Honestly, that would be a great visual to go with this. I think that's absolutely true. So I will say this one other, I'm going to call it step six, which is 529 plans. So uh, many of our clients have 529 plans as a tax advantage way of saving for their children's education going forward. And in 08, I had some clients came to me after they made this decision. I would never have suggested this to them. They pulled money out of these 529 plans because, you know, they had to pay bills and the market was crashed, or it was just absolutely horrible for, for them. But the penalties on 529 plans is the same as pulling them out of these Roth accounts or IRAs. If you're not using that 529 plans for college, um, now you can kind of use them also for um, certain kinds of private elementary school and high school. But if you can't use it for those accounts, then you've got the 10% penalty and ordinary income tax on the gain 
once again, it was a situation where they were losing about 50% if they had to pull it out of 529 plans. Again, sounds very painful. Extremely painful. And not only for the amount of money that you lose should you have to withdraw it, but also for the benefit that you can offer your children and then ultimately the financial stress that they're going to have to face when they have to pay for college all on their own. Right. There are no good answers to that. The good answer to that might be plan ahead. So that's part of the reason, although we do do 529 plans for our clients, we're actually doing less of them than we ever have before. Clients are putting some money into what we call non-qualified or brokerage accounts, earmarking them for college for this exact reason that I'm talking about in this cascade catastrophe plan, because they could access those, I'm using air quotes, college funds without any penalties if their family got into a real crisis. And I think I've mentioned before, I really like that approach because you never know when you're going to need the flexibility, but when you need it, you need it. Exactly. And you want to be able to get it quickly. You don't have to pay penalties. Now, there's one last solution. I guess I would call this a step two and a half. So this would be in between the intermediate account and the wealth accumulation account for some clients. This doesn't work for everybody, but some of our clients have got uh, cash value life insurance or investment grade life insurance. This doesn't work for everybody, but some of the doctors that have these, you can actually borrow from these insurance policies. Now, this doesn't work if there are new policies and you just have them in the last couple of years. But if you've had them for a number of years, they've got some significant cash value. These insurance companies will allow you to borrow against the cash value of the policies. And once again, that's some money you could be used in an emergency if you needed it. And when you borrow, is that similar to your 401k where it's essentially a loan to yourself? So you're having to pay that back with interest? Yes. So it's very interesting, depending upon the policy, how it's set up, is they usually will charge you an interest rate on the loan. But depending upon what kind of cash value policy you've got, whether it's whole life or um, universal or some of the other types, they will also have the cash value growing at a particular rate. So it is a bit like paying interest you know, to yourself. Some of these policies, you don't have to pay the money back. You just, they'll deduct the loans from the death benefit. So at death, your heirs would get less money than the death benefit because they'd subtract out what your loan was. Now, a lot of our clients use these kind of policies for tax-free income and retirement. So if they've pulled out all the money earlier for some catastrophe, they won't be able to use it for tax-free income and retirement, but at least they were able to get some of the money up. And so, gosh forbid, if there was a catastrophe and you needed the money, you would have to go to the insurance carrier to understand if the policy did have cash value. And from there, you could potentially withdraw the amount of that cash value of the policy at that time. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's right. Once again, this is where it really helps, I think, to have that neutral trusted advisor because um, I was working with a client today who just bought a new house and they were really strapped for cash. They had not thought about analyzing finances the way I'm doing it. And so they were going to be pulling money out of some of the wrong buckets. And so in their situation, I said, I think what you should do, what would be most appropriate for you is just stop making payments into your 401k or 403b at work because it's only for a couple of months that you're in this short-term span and if you've really got a crisis we can pull money or we can borrow money against your 401k at work and they were like oh that makes total sense that makes total sense or i had another client when we were talking about using that 2575 account and i always want to disclose to them 
you could lose money in this account. Look at OH for six months. You know, it was underwater. I said, but if you need this money in a situation like 08, rather than pulling it out at a loss, we could borrow money from your work account. They're like, well, I never thought about that. So sometimes it just helps to get another opinion on how to think about this. So you make really good choices. So it sounds like there is some flexibility there. There is some options. But to go back to your point on your philosophy of financial savings, you really need to have a balanced approach. You can't have all your assets in one bucket because then you lose all that flexibility. I think that's right. You lose the flexibility. But most of all, I want our listeners to be thinking things happen. Bad things happen to really good people. And I think I mentioned to you, my husband was at a stoplight and somebody ran two red lights and hit him head on. He was unemployed for a year. So it wasn't his fault, right? Nothing happened. I've got a doctor right now. It's horrible what happened to her. She too was in a car accident. She hasn't been able to get back to work. It's just absolutely devastating. So I think it always helps to have some sort of backup emergency plan. Helps you sleep better at night. Absolutely. And just to highlight for our listeners, what we've been talking about is a financial plan for catastrophes. So again, if you're going down your financial wellness and you're not happy with things, or if something is coming up that maybe is taking your priority at the moment, like you mentioned the story about a new house purchase, you can temporarily rearrange how you're approaching your finances. But in the time of a catastrophe, there often isn't that time. And therefore, having this plan in place beforehand and knowing your options is going to be essential to help you weather that with the least amount of impact. Oh, that was so beautifully said. I don't think I could add a thing to that. Well done, Christy. All right, Miss Catherine. Well, once again, we thank you for your expert advice and your wonderful insights and the benefit of all your experience. Our goal is to give our listeners some financial education and hopefully give them some comfort so that they can sleep at night. And now we know how to weather a catastrophe. So thank you, Catherine. My pleasure. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. And we look forward to having you with us again next month on Money Minutes for Doctors. Take care. Get back. I'm all right, Jack. Keep your hands off of my stack.